Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was strong. Look at all these people back here. Isn't that cool? (laughs) It is our privilege and our responsibility to come before God and to gather together as God's people to worship and praise. So I welcome you, whether you have been coming to this church and part of it forever, or whether you are here for the very first time. We're happy to have you. We're happy to have you if you're present in this sanctuary and as you are present with us online. Let us be called together to worship in our common voice now as we read responsively from the 33rd Psalm. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In the season of Lent, we look forward to remembering Jesus' death and the celebration of his resurrection. During this season, we also look into our own hearts and allow God to renew us. Part of the way in which we do that is to confess our sins individually and as a body of believers. 
Will you please join me as together we pray the prayer of confession as printed in the bulletin. Holy God, giver of light and grace, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men and women through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We have belittled your love and betrayed your trust. We are sorry and ashamed, and we repent of all our sins for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Amen. Hear now these words of assurance. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven and made new. Thanks be to God. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you. I encourage you as people who are free and forgiven to turn around to those and share that joy that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ by the passing of the peace. Your worship leaders have been talking about all of our different protocols and practices, and in just a week or two, we'll be inviting everyone to sing. We'll provide you copies of the hymns, and at some point, we'll program in the copious amounts of time that it takes for all of you to hug each other in the passing of the peace. So we'll get that figured out as well. There's other news going on in the life of the church. Let me share that briefly with you. First of all, we are continuing to receive a special offering to support refugee relief efforts in the Ukraine. That uh, funds are going through the Outreach Foundation, and we already have received here a little over $25,000. Outreach Foundation has sent over a $100,000 already, and there are people now on the ground in Poland and Lithuania, and we are working to get some of these funds into the Ukraine. We'll see how that works out. But please continue your generosity and, of course, your prayers for that uh, troubled part of the world. A little bit closer to home, uh, following this service today, we're going to have another chat with Jack so that you have an opportunity to discuss among yourselves and to visit with me as well about the things that you'll be hearing about in the sermon a little bit later. We will be scheduling these on a fairly regular basis and also including some of the important questions that arise from out of these sermons. Those are printed on a bulletin insert for you this morning, so if you cannot stay for the chat with Jack, then we ask that you take the insert home fill out your answer to the questions and send them back to me and I'll grade them all. And then we'll chat some more. 
Two weeks from today, Marilyn Borst, uh, one of our associate directors of the Outreach Foundation, will be here to speak with us about the mission work that we accomplish around the world. She'll be speaking particularly about her work in the Middle East and in Cuba. She will stay after the second service for a chat with Marilyn, if you will, so we encourage you to work that into your planning for two weeks from today. A week from Monday, a week from tomorrow, on the 21st, we will have a brief Zoom congregational meeting uh, for the purpose of acting on the request of our brother Neil Pressa for the dissolution of the pastoral relationship. Neil's going to be with us through April and we'll have an opportunity actually next Sunday to preach and then the last Sunday of April, but we do need to accomplish this little thing to take care of Presbyterian polity. So if you are a member of the church, especially, we ask you to pre-register and then to log into that meeting so we can have an official meeting on the 21st at 6 o'clock. Also today, after church, in addition to the chat with Jack going on, we have an opportunity for you to make Valentine's cards. Now, I know you think that we're just planning ahead. Actually, we're not. Valentine's occurs a little bit later in the year in Brazil, and we're going to be sending Valentine's cards to our mission partners in Brazil. So if you'd like to come and fill out a Valentine's card, there's a table out in the patio. Spend a few minutes and use some of your creative abilities that way. Finally, I want to invite all of you right now to take out your cell phones. I know you have them. I see you looking at them in church. And I'm going to invite you to do something that apparently the choir was invited to do on Thursday night. More and more people are coming back to church, but we want everybody to come back to the fellowship and friendship of the church. And so Juan invited the choir Thursday night, right in the middle of choir rehearsal, to send a text to other members of the choir that haven't come back yet. Okay, so now I'm going to invite you to send a text. Don't make a voice phone call. We'll hear you, okay? But just send a text to someone that you know who's part of the life of this church that needs to come back. Or better yet, think of that friend of yours who's the biggest sinner in the world and they really need to come to church, okay? Let's communicate, let's get this thing going again. Juan, thanks for that heads up. If you wanna text me in the message during the sermon, let me know how I'm doing, don't. Friends, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to give to the life of the church and to give to God. So as the bell choir is playing now our offertory anthem, let me invite you, those who would so wish, to come forward to the offering baskets and place your offering there or in other ways to find ways that you can give to the life and ministry of Jesus' church. God bless.
Amen. Beautiful Savior. Thank you. Friends, this is the time in our worship service where we present our prayers of petition, of intercession for ourselves and for the world around us, as well as to lift up prayers of thanksgiving for the many ways that God blesses us and God loves us. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, you are God. You are our beautiful Savior in whom we live and move and have our being. We are grateful to you, O Lord, for you meet us in this sacred place, in this sacred time. You alone are deserving and worthy of our worship, of our praise, of our life. You are the source of life. You are the source of our salvation. We turn to you, O God, for you, you are the one who is our peace. You are the one who is our love. You are the one who is our joy. Come to us in a way that only you can, living God. Come and see in us your children who are in need of your mercy and of your grace. Might your praises resound in the deep recesses of our hearts, in every part of your creation. For we groan and yearn and long for your salvation, O Lord, to be made known throughout all the earth. Our souls and our hearts are parched and we thirst. We thirst just like the prophet Amos who said that might your justice roll down like the river, your righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Might it be so, O God, in us and through us, among us, and indeed in your world. Gracious and loving God, we pray that you would see in the brokenness and hurt of your world, a world that is in need of your deliverance, in need of your love. Lord, Provide protection and refuge for the millions of Ukrainians, O oh God, who have lost their lives and their livelihoods and their homes. Pour forth your mercy, O oh God. Provide shelter and food, clean water and hope, O oh God, to your people. Turn away the missiles. Turn away the armies. Turn away the invasion, O oh God. Intervene in a powerful way. Hear the prayers, O Lord, of your people who are pleading to you, who are crying to you, 
Lord, just as the prophet Habakkuk asked you, there is violence everywhere. Lord, where are you? Might your presence be made known, O God, we pray. In so many places around the world, O God, both far and near, where there is great hurt and loss and death, show forth your resurrection power and life. Infuse hope where there is despair. Lord, for so many who have experienced great loss and death in their own households, might your peace and your love be magnified. For so many households and families, O Lord, who are wondering and waiting, grant your resilient peace. For students, O Lord, who are studying, or perhaps who are on vacation, or perhaps for so many high school students who are awaiting word from colleges and universities, grant them patience and provision, we pray. For every household that is represented here, both in person and online, you know our needs, you know our heart's desires. Speak to us, O Lord, accompany us on life's journey. For your churches and worshiping communities that are gathering or, or have already gathered or will be gathering, we pray, gracious God, that your spirit would move and breathe, that the, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would, would be proclaimed faithfully, even as we pray for our brother, Pastor Jack, as he proclaims your word to us. Might there be spaces and places in our lives to hear it faithfully and to live it out. For all other prayers, O oh God, that we offer in the silence of our hearts, you know us inside and out even before we speak it. Hear us, incline your ear to us as we cascade these prayers into your heart, into your ears. Heavenly Father, we are bold enough, confident enough to pray those sacred words that Jesus Christ taught his disciples, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Amen. Friends, stand with me so that we may hear and receive the reading of God's word in the gospel as we find it recorded in the books of John and Mark. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the coal cohort, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Two years ago, to this very day, in response to directives from various governmental authorities, the Village Church abruptly shut down all of our in-person, on-site activity, and we pivoted to almost purely online forms of ministry and life. You might say that we put a mask on everything, and we distanced everything, and we sanitized everything. We have never been so clean in our lives. 
For two years now, we have been especially mindful in our own lives and in our whole society, I suppose, about the presence and the impact and the power of government. Government as it responded to the pandemic, and then after the pandemic began, government as it responded to the transition of power and the presidency of the United States in a way that had never happened before. We also responded and have lived through the, the presence of government and the ways that we organize and arrange ourselves as we have responded to other social matters having nothing to do with the pandemic. We've thought long and hard about the presence of our police forces and now our military forces as there have been flare-ups and matters related to racism in this country and then of course just recently the outbreak of war in Europe. In all of those ways, perhaps more so than normal, we have been thinking about what it means to have government officials, to have people who enforce the laws, to have people who are involved in military activity in the world. As Christian people, when we are going through the things of our lives, we always refer our things back to old things, historic things, things of scripture. We've been doing that especially the last few weeks as we have been looking at some of the ordinary people who filled the life and times of Jesus, especially those people who appear in the passion. The last weeks, hours, moments of Jesus' life. We've been learning from their history and learning about our history, the history that we are making even now as we live. We are learning as they reacted to Jesus and as we seek to follow Jesus. And so today we learn from two groups of people represented by the soldiers of the Roman Empire, by a particular kind of soldier of the empire, a centurion, and then by the chief representative of the empire in the region in which Jesus lived, by the governor. So let's talk about soldiers for a minute, Roman soldiers. As I did a little bit of research into Roman soldiers, I discovered that I already knew a lot about Roman soldiers, and, and you probably do too, because Roman soldiers appear all the time in our movies, in our stories. It's one of those movies that I have to watch every time it comes on TV, even though I know how it ends, the, the story of the gladiator. How many of you have seen Gladiator? Right? Russell Crowe? There's a lot of discussion about Roman soldiers, especially Roman gladiators. We know what they wear. We know about their cool swords and their red plumes and, and their storytelling and all the ways that they, that they fought. We know that Roman soldiers were well-trained fighting men. They were the best army of their time. We're told that they could march for 20 miles a day and at the end of a march set up a brand new camp with ditches all around and wooden stakes to form a perimeter. They had the latest weapons and the latest armor and the latest tactics. And above all, every single Roman soldier was trained to follow orders. And if they did not follow orders, they would be executed. 
there were some special Roman soldiers. Every once in a while, one would distinguish himself because of his fighting ability and his leadership qualities, and he would become a non-commissioned officer in charge of a hundred other soldiers. We called those soldiers centurions because they were in charge of a hundred. In today's military, they would be the equivalent, perhaps, of a sergeant major. They were well-known in the society of Jesus' day. They were part and parcel of what people would think about when they would think about the army. They were trained in courage and endurance and uncomplaining suffering. In fact, they were so well-known that they, that they were often parodied and caricatured. You know, it's only when you're famous or well-known that, that people make a lot of fun of you. Every centurion, it was said, had fat calves and wore hop-nailed boots. That's how you pictured a centurion, apparently. The Greek historian Polybius wrote that centurions were men who can command, they were steady, they were reliable, they were ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. That's who the centurions were, kind of like the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets of their day. There are actually six centurions who are mentioned in the New Testament. One of them, of course, the centurion in charge of the cohort that executed Jesus. One of the centurions in the book of Acts actually is named. His name is Cornelius. Peter witnessed to Cornelius about Jesus, and Cornelius became a Christian, one of the first Gentiles to become Christian. Just like all the common soldiers, the foot soldiers of the day, centurions were trained to follow orders or they would die. Let's talk about Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Almost everyone knows that name, whether they're Christian or not. We recite it when we recite the Apostles' Creed. That's how important a figure he was in the last hours of Jesus' life. We know a lot about Pontius Pilate because all four of the Gospels speak of him. We also know a lot about him because the Jewish historians Josephus and Philo and then later the church historian Eusebius wrote about Pilate and his life and times. Pilate was the fifth person to hold the post of Roman procurator of Judea and Samaria and Idumea. He governed from the year 26 to the year 36. Pontius was actually his family name, his last name, if you will, in our tradition. Pilate would have been his first name, Pilatus. It refers to the spear or the javelin that soldiers would carry. We believe that, that Pontius Pilate was the son of a prominent Roman family, and as such, he went through diplomatic training and government training so that he could hold positions within the Roman Empire. But apparently, he was not the best and the brightest, or at least the best connected among all of those who were rising up through the ranks, because he was given the very undesirable and difficult posting out in the sticks in Judea. 
Probably he himself was in his early 30s when he started his work, not much older and maybe just the same age as Jesus. He was known to be proud, hot-tempered, obstinate, and not always the sharpest tack in the drawer. His official residence was not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't the best place to live in Israel. The best place to live was over on the coast, in the coastal city of Caesarea that the Romans had built to be their capital in that area. But when something important would be going on in Jerusalem, something important like the Passover, something where thousands of people would gather and you had the potential for trouble, then Pilate would move the seat of his government into Jerusalem for a time. That's apparently what he had done at the time that Jesus was there. Pilate is partly famous because of his wife who told him what to do and he didn't listen. There's another story there, we won't go that far. <laughs> Pilate's wife was Claudia Procula. She was the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus. She was the illegitimate daughter of Claudia who was the third wife of Emperor Tiberius. She was a very cultured woman, sensitive and sophisticated, and a spoiled princess. Let me tell you a couple stories about Pilate's governorship. And it starts with the way things existed in Judea at the time of Jesus. When the Romans came in and took over Judea, they gave a special status to the Jewish nation that existed there. When the Romans went anywhere else, what they would do would be to take statues and paintings and representations of the emperor, and they would plant them everywhere. They would plant them in their government offices, in their temples, everywhere you would see an image of the Caesar to remind you who was in control. And they even asked people to worship the Caesar as a demigod. But in Israel, because of the Romans' respect for the ancient tradition of the Jews, because of their appreciation for the highly structured and organized society that the Jews had built based on law, the Romans gave the Jews an exception and they said, you do not have to have a representation of the Caesar anywhere in your territory and especially in your holy places. It was an exceptional exception. <laughs> but Pilate wasn't smart enough or informed enough to know. And so when Pilate took office, he marched with his army into Jerusalem with prominent images of the emperor displayed on the standards of the army. And then he erected statues in the area of Jerusalem of the Caesar. And the Jews were outraged. This was a breach of the protocol. This was breaking the treaty, if you will, that Israel had with Rome. And so the Jewish leaders, very, very wise and crafty people, they arranged for 7,000 Jews to surround the palace area and they knelt in prayer and they prayed for hours and hours and hours. And Pilate assembled his army and was ready to wipe out the Jews, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. 
and he relented and he removed some of these images. He had been outwitted, he had been outfoxed by Caiaphas, the high priest. We've heard about Caiaphas before. We thought maybe Pilate had learned his lesson, but over time he became more inflexible and more insensitive in his leadership. In the year 36, the emperor decreed even more tolerance for the Jews. And Pilate was forced to remove other symbols of the empire in the area. But then everything came to a head. When some of the Samaritans, Jews that lived in the northern part of Israel, some of the Samaritans gathered together at Mount Gerizim for one of their traditional sacrifices. And Pilate mistook their gathering for a political revolt. And so he massacred several villages. That massacre was reported to the emperor back in Rome, who was outraged, not so much at the carnage, but outraged at the, at the upsetness of the whole civilization and the fact that it would mean the disruption of the provision of taxes into Rome. And so Pilate was recalled by the emperor, and he was removed from his post, and he was even exiled from Italy. He was not a very good governor, maybe over his head. But just like the soldiers and just like the centurion, Pilate had to follow orders from the emperor himself. We could tell lots of other stories about Pilate. We don't have the time. So let's ask this question. How can we learn from the stories of these folks? What can we observe about their lives that might teach us something about our own? All of them, when you think about it, all of them were part of a larger reality that was out of their control. They lived in a culture. They lived in a period of time. They lived within a certain context in an empire when they had to follow orders. They had to do what they were told. Their possibilities were limited, some more so than others. But all of them had to live within the context in which they were born. And it was not altogether happy. And yet, and yet, they still had some wiggle room. We know of cases where centurions were kind to some of the Christians and kind to some of the Jews. Pilate himself could have been at least smarter, if not kinder, in his dealing with the Jewish nation. But there you have it. I suppose you could say they did the best that they could. Maybe we can sympathize with them. Maybe we can learn from them something about our own world. Is it not true that every single one of us is born into a world that was not of our making? Every single one of us has lived a life that has been conditioned and to some extent directed and even controlled by things that are outside of us. Things that we might have wanted to change. When I think about my own life, there are some things that I might have wanted to change. Other things, not so much. It's been a great blessing to be the incredibly 
powerful, popular sex symbol that I am. But there's been some other things, Suhail, that are not so good. We are all born into an imperfect world, into imperfect lives that in some sense we cannot help but participate in and be part of. We are born into a compromised reality. And so what do we do about that? Well, the first thing that we do about that is that we recognize it. We admit it. And we understand that in some way, we are partly complicit in it. No, we are not responsible for everything that has happened in the past, but we are responsible to live in the present. And we must admit what the present is, that it's not altogether a holy and just and righteous and good thing. We also must understand that everybody else on the planet is living in the same reality. Those people that we think of as our enemies, those people that we think of as doing a terrible job with their lives are doing what they think is right based on what they were handed in life. It would be easy, it is easy, to look at the person that you were born to be and the place in which you were born, the time in which you were born, and simply say, this is what I was handed, this is who I am, I cannot change it. A Roman soldier could simply say, I'm just following orders. A Roman centurion could simply say, this is the lot of my life that I was handed. Even someone like Pilate could say, I had no choice. But do we have no choice? We do have a choice of how we will respond to the lives that we are handed. We have a choice about what we will do with this mess of a world that we were given. And we follow a Savior who says we can do better. We follow a Master who says, here's how you can do better. As we think about our lives as citizens of a nation, our lives as participants in a culture, we think about those in so many other parts of the world who are born with almost nothing out of which they must try to make something. And I cannot help but think that you and me we who were born into this particular place and this particular time with freedom, with prosperity, with the God-given right to participate in and therefore be responsible for our government and what it does. I cannot help but think that we are held all the more responsible, that we have all the more opportunity to make of the world a better place than we found it, not to take the excuse that so many might have that they are powerless. That's what I see when I look at Roman soldiers and centurions, even the governor, even the governor. We have so much more than they did. Pray that we always will. Pray that we will live up to that high calling 
of being a government, of being a nation, of being a society, of being a people who live out the call and claim of God to live into justice, to live into righteousness, to live into the common good for all people. We cannot sit back and blame the generals or blame the presidents or blame all those other people who do everything wrong all the time. We have to look at ourselves. The choir sang for us a beautiful prayer from 2 Samuel, a prayer that is understood to be some of the last words of David in which he prayed about and spoke about the high calling of a king. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. We, the people who are our own king, must take that to heart, mustn't we? At the end of the day, whether you're an emperor or a governor or merely a common foot soldier, this is our vision, this is our responsibility to be just and righteous, ruling over whatever it is that we control, especially ourselves, in such a way that we revere and serve the ultimate rule of God. Amen. Friends, let us affirm our faith through the sacred words of Philippians chapter 2, in one voice and in one heart. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess to the glory of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.
The other day, Helen came into my office and said she'd been reading a John Grisham novel. And in the end notes, John Grisham started talking about someone that he knew who ended up being a classmate of mine at Princeton Seminary, a guy named Jim McCloskey. Over 40 years ago, when we were there, Jim did some work in one of the prisons there close to Princeton. And he met one of the inmates who said he was innocent. And Jim started doing some work and discovered that, in fact, the guy was innocent. And so he started working with lawyers and the criminal justice system to retry the case. And sure enough, he had been wrongly convicted. That sent Jim off into a ministry that continues to this day and includes John Grisham on its board, a ministry that has freed over 300 people who were wrongly convicted and wrongly incarcerated. It's a stroke of genius that the name of that ministry is called Centurion Ministries. What are you and I doing to make the world more just, more righteous, more loving? It's a good question. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us this day and always. Amen.